Uh, my name is Dennis Palmer. I am an internist. I work at Mbingo Baptist Hospital in the northwest province of Cameroon. And uh, the topic uh, that we were going to talk about this afternoon is uh, some issues related to some of the non-infectious disease problems that uh, you face when you uh, work in Africa. At Mbingo, we have, a, we have an internal medicine residency program. And uh, so we're kind of structured as a, we run an internal medicine service there. About half of the patients that we take care of uh, on our adult medicine wards uh, are, are still HIV infected. And so that, uh, and so infectious diseases are still uh, probably the most important in terms of numbers of the patients that, that we take care of. But what's been happening over these last several years is, uh, as we've developed the programs there, is that the number of patients who are showing up with, with uh, other problems, especially cancer, uh, are becoming an increasing part of what we do. So that's kind of what we want to talk about this afternoon, because I think that this is going to mirror what the experience of other mission hospitals are, especially across Africa. And uh, so I think that this is an important topic. Um, this is, a, uh, this is a, a chart out of Harrison's that looks at um, the distribution of disease uh, by income status. And so you can see that there's quite a difference. That red group are uh, communicable diseases, maternal, perinatal, and, and nutritional conditions. So things that probably uh, one would have a chance to... Uh, to resolve uh, pretty easily. I mean, if it's a communicable disease, tuberculosis or something, you can. those are treatable kinds of things. The yellow are the non-communicable diseases, and I think there's a session coming after this one that's going to deal with uh, some of those as well. And then the, the green group is, is uh, uh, trauma and injuries. But uh, this is, so this is kind of what the distribution is. But one of the things that, uh, is being understood now is that this is rapidly changing. So uh, in the things that over the years that we've been able to do in these uh, in developing countries, places across Africa have been to treat the malaria and pneumonias and uh, other things like that. HIV came along and became, you know, complicated things a whole lot because that you can't actually treat that one so easily. But uh, that's where the focus has been. But there is a, there's going to be a major shift in coming years uh, away from those kinds of diseases and into other, other kinds of uh, problems. And so uh, one of those things that, that, that is going to be increasingly important is cancer. And um, it's estimated that in 2010, from this graph, that about there will be about 12.8 million cases of cancer that uh, are reported. And because of uh, the issues with treatment, an increasing number of the deaths associated with cancer will be in developing countries. Um, we've made, we're making uh, a lot more progress in the ability to treat cancer in, you know, here in this country. And I think the death rates overall are somewhere less than 50% now, but it's still, it's still much higher than that. Um, the reason that the, that the incidence of cancer goes up, the most important is that people are living longer and old people tend to get cancer more frequently than, uh, than younger ones. Uh, one of the other important things is the use of tobacco. So uh, as tobacco usage is declining and becoming somewhat 
less socially acceptable in developed countries here in the U.S. There are major campaigns against uh, against smoking, but in developing countries, uh, the rates of cigarette smoking is still increasing, and um, as income levels rise, that's something that people tend to be able to afford uh, more. In Cameroon, where with our patient population, we you know they sell cigarettes by the stick, they say. So you buy one cigarette at a time, and people will smoke three or four a day, and they think that that constitutes heavy smoking. Well, we the surprising thing that I've run across is that there are patients that come in that actually were smoking two packs a day. Well, I wouldn't have thought that was possible. I wouldn't have thought they could have afforded that. But, in fact, those people are out there. And so you start to see the, uh, the complications of that. Uh, other things that affect the, the rate of uh, cancer, obesity, uh, associated not a strong risk factor, but uh, as the lifestyle changes more, adopting more of a Western lifestyle, then that, that has some impact. So by 2030, it's estimated that 70% of the patients who develop cancer will live in developing countries for some of these, for some of these kind of reasons. And uh, again, the, the proportion of those people who die with their tumors uh, is going to be, it's going to increase uh, because of the lack of, uh, of good care. Uh, this is a, a graph that uh, from different areas of Africa that, that looks at uh, different kinds of cancer. So uh, starting over on that side is lung cancer, breast cancer. And uh, what you can see is that the areas that where, where we work out in the middle part of Africa and Cameroon, those areas, tend to have uh, lower levels than South Africa, the Southern African. And I think that my explanation is not that we have less cancer, but that the health infrastructure is much weaker and that the reporting is, uh, is much, much less successful. So many of the countries in, in Sub-Saharan Africa have a very, very poor uh, public health sector that actually accurately gathers uh, these statistics. They don't the diagnosis is not even easily made in, in many places. And so I don't know how accurate that is, but you can see that um, things like breast cancer, uh, prostate cancer, uh, cancer of the cervix, some of those are, are relatively more commonly reported. Perhaps it's because those are, are relatively easily diagnosed, uh, clinically diagnosed. And some of the other kinds of things like liver cancer, we usually diagnose that with an ultrasound and not everybody even today has access to, to a reasonable ultrasound, or especially esophageal cancer. Um, you have to have an endoscope, and those, are even, those, those kinds of procedures are even less commonly uh, available. And this is a, one of the other interesting things about cancer in Africa is that a, a much higher proportion of the, um, of the cancers that we see are associated with persistent infections. And uh, you can see from the list there, um, H. pylori, which is a uh, in uh, certain, well, probably across most of Africa, but in uh, certainly in the area where we work, uh, probably of the adults, the infection rates get to 90%. And so about half of the risk of developing carcinoma of the, of the stomach is thought to be associated with, with uh, heavy infections of H. pylori. Uh, it's, it's, H. pylori infection is common here, but... The rate, uh, the number of bacteria, the amount of inflammation in the stomach is far higher in those populations than it is back here. So it's a, it, and we still see uh, a lot of uh, gastric cancer as a result of that. And then uh, uh, HPV, so uh, you know, cervical cancer uh, and cancer of the, uh, of the oropharynx, 
associated with that is, is common. Uh, hepatitis B, uh, primary hepatocellular carcinoma is a, is a very common uh, tumor. It's probably in the top three that we, that we see at our hospital at, at Mbingo uh, these days. Um, Epstein-Barr virus, uh, you're all familiar with Burkitt's lymphoma and the association with, with Epstein-Barr virus and, uh, and the interaction between Epstein-Barr and, and malaria. And so we, we think we have a program I'll talk about in a little bit here that deals with some of that. But um, we think that we're near the epicenter of Burkitt's uh, in the world, perhaps, out in our area there. Um, uh, human herpes virus number eight, uh, associated with Kaposi's sarcoma. Um, in, uh, back in the 80s, when HIV was first, uh, before there was effective treatment uh, for it, it was, uh, Kaposi's was a very common diagnosis here. It's, it's really quite a rare tumor in the HIV population back here. But in Cameroon, it may be as high as 10% of the patients present with that. So uh, those, are, those are very common problems that we deal with. And uh, the other infections are things that I have less experience with and are presumably maybe, maybe they're locally uh, common. I don't know. Um, this, is a, uh, this is a slide that looks at survival from cancer. This is from uh, an article by Paul Farmer in Lancet. Um, and you can see that if you go from the over on that side, the, the lower income countries over to the high income countries, that that there is a, a very persistent uh, improvement in outcomes with cancer. So that um, that the top line, I don't know if the colors are showing through, but the one that starts at the top over there is breast cancer. And you can see that uh, the survival rates are less than 20 percent in Low-income countries, but they get they get down to uh, maybe 60%. Uh, you know, in in, in uh, developed countries, has a lot to do with the uh, with the stage of disease, uh, uh, early diagnosis versus late diagnosis screening. Uh, so mammograms, which we are not able to do, and uh, and then availability of uh, treatment modalities uh, that are there. So. Um, all of those things are, are important. Um, and then this is, another, this is another table from that article uh, uh, that by Paul Farmer. But it looks at different things that you might be able to do to intervene in taking care of these patients. So there are going to be increasing numbers of patients um, to take care of. But, you know, uh, these are things that uh, an hierarchy of perhaps where we could put our resources and so uh, the very first thing is always prevention. Well, that would be, if we could prevent the cancer, that would be the very best thing. And the most important thing we can do there, as in anywhere else, is to get people to quit smoking cigarettes. And uh, unfortunately, they're not, there's not the social uh, support. Uh, there are not programs to encourage people to, to quit smoking. And, um, you know, governments everywhere are looking for tax revenues, and so cigarettes become a a source of revenue uh, in all over, and so there, you know, the, the governments are somewhat conflicted about about those kind of things. But um, so tobacco would be one big good place to start. Uh, human papillomavirus, uh, the Gardasil is a uh, you know that those va the vaccination is available that prevents um, human papillomavirus, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute too. Um, and then her uh, hepatitis vaccine. So hepatitis B vaccine uh, is incorporated 
now in in Cameroon, it's incorporated into the uh, into the well baby clinics. And so, if you know the mother has uh, is hepatitis B surface antigen positive, then they uh, then you get the baby their first shot of hepatitis B vaccine um, the first day after delivery. I think I lost something. Okay, whatever. I'll talk loud. Um, anyway, so because they uh, so incorporating hepatitis uh, B vaccine into the uh, into the well baby clinics is a uh, has is going to prove we think a, a very effective way of of uh, improving the uh, uh, the rate of H of hepatitis primary hepatocellular carcinoma. Uh, you know that the earlier in life that you contract hepatitis B virus, the more likely it is that you'll have a persistent infection. So if you get it in the first year of life, the persistence rates are maybe 90%. And if you ha and so we see patients who come into the hospital in their late teens with uh, with uh, uh, HCC, and most of them are pre presenting uh, uh, between that age and their up into their 30s. So it's a it, it, that's about the Length of time it takes to develop that. Um, then uh, things like cervical cancer screening, breast cancer screening. Um, there are programs now that uh, that, and I'll show you some slides about this of of innovative ways, uh, not using Pap smears, but uh, the techniques are actually thought to be more sensitive than Pap smears to do uh, to screen for cervical cancer. Again, the infrastructure it takes a much uh, greater emphasis on infrastructure than what most uh, countries out in that part in our part of the world actually have available. Uh, whether self, uh, women doing self-examination, uh, how effective that is in lowering the uh, mortality from breast cancer is, uh, uh, I don't think that's well known. And uh, the programs to teach women to do that are not commonly available out there at this point. Uh, colorectal cancer, we didn't use, uh, I've been out there for a long time, and in the early days, back in the early 80s, when we were there, uh, my first term, my first four-year term, we saw one, ca one case of uh, colon cancer. And uh, now we see, we have a, we do colonoscopy and, and, and are attracting some of those patients uh, as well, but we see a, a probably a case every one to two weeks of patients coming in with that. And it's very strange, we see Young people in their, uh, we've had several cases in their 20s that present with colon cancer. So I'm not sure, it, it may behave somewhat differently uh, than here. Um, things that are potentially uh, curable with simple chemotherapy would be uh, some of the lymphomas, especially Burkitt's lymphoma, uh, testicular cancer, and um, well, we do not attempt to do anything with, uh, with the acute leukemias. That's thought to be Something that's beyond, uh, and I don't. I'm not sure there's a program in West Africa that does a very good job with that at this point. So that's a that's a bad thing to have. Uh, some of these others uh, tumors that we can palliate. Uh, Kaposi's does quite well in, in a lot of cases if with a three drug protocol, and uh, even breast cancer uh, you can uh, you can do reasonable palliation uh, for some of those. So these are some of the issues that uh, that we've been trying to address in our um, in our program uh, at Imbingo in, in 
and I want to go over some of those. So uh, these issues of, uh, well, late diagnosis, how do, you, uh, how do you educate the population to recognize that they have something that's bad, that they ought to get to a more one of the upper-level health facilities and see if something uh, can be done about that. Uh, issues of uh, inadequately inadequate uh, medical personnel, so having surgeons uh, um, available who are able to do the kind of surgery that's necessary for some of these cases. Uh, actually, having a pathologist available is uh, that's a very, that's a rarity, and uh, so uh, we're very blessed that to have uh, someone that does that. There there are very few med- trained medical oncologists. In Africa, so that there are schemes that are designed to perhaps uh, allow non-oncologists to treat uh, some of these uh, some of these more common cancers, uh, because there's no no other way that the patients are going to be able to get care. Uh, simple th- logistical things like the supply of drugs is is difficult. Um, at uh, we struggle. Uh, there are times with some of these simple chemotherapy agents that we can't actually find them in Cameroon. Uh, we look all over in the pharmacies and wholesalers and different places. So we uh, many times uh, have to import our own medications from from um, either Europe or here in the U.S. to have an adequate supply. And, and that's a lot of effort goes into just procuring those. And then once we get the drugs, then it's the cost. So we are, a, like most mission hospitals, we operate on a fee-for-service basis. So uh, the cost of the medications to the patients uh, is, makes the treatment difficult. Uh, in our system, um, a three-drug protocol typically costs about $100 for one course. That doesn't include lab and other imaging things, uh, but just the, just the drugs and the, to get it administered. So the per capita income in Cameroon is thought to be around $1,200 a year. If we give six courses of chemo to a patient with breast cancer, which would be fairly standard, then you can see that we've used half of a family's income just uh, on that. So uh, we, we have to be very selective about who we try to treat and uh, hope that we actually are making wise decisions about the use of resources. Because if we don't, uh, there are children that don't go to school and other, a lot of other issues, things that families should be doing that we've consumed those resources and, and uh, those are problems. So um, radiation therapy is largely not available. Uh, there are two units in Cameroon in the capital, so it's six hours away from us. So some of the diseases like advanced cervical cancer, that, that's one of the primary treatment modalities. It's difficult for our patients to get that because uh, they have to travel and stay there for over several weeks to get the radiation administered, and uh, and it's a, it's a real hardship on them. And many of them just don't have the resources available uh, to do that, and it compromises care. So, we you know, we dream someday of having a radiation therapy unit uh, to complement the other things uh, that we're doing at this point. So this is in bingo. <coughs> uh, we are a, the hospital has been there since 1952. It's out in the, it's in a rural area. Uh, it was built there. It was originally a leprosy settlement, and uh, so we have about 2,000 acres of land that goes way back up into the hills there. Uh, the I, uh, one the one reason we have so much land is that no one wanted to live next to patients with leprosy, uh, 
And the other was that we wanted to raise cattle to support the leprosy program. So we still have a herd of about 350 cows that are there as part of what we do. Uh, but it's a beautiful place, and if you want to come visit, it's, uh, we think it would be a national park if it were here in, in uh, the U.S. somewhere. This is the entrance into the hospital, um, and this is what our wards look like. There's nothing special. These are plank beds that have been there. This is actually the old HD part of the hospital uh, that's now converted over to – it's actually an ulcer ward at this point. Um, and our peds ward – through that door at the far end, that is a six-bed pediatric oncology unit. And, it, and we use that. To, we have a program I'll talk about in a second here for our Burkitt's lymphoma patients. So uh, one of it, we had a medical student that visited one of our hospitals a few years ago. And, they, and she looked into why patients present to the hospital late. Uh, with uh, advanced disease. And so this was kind of the scenario that she came up with uh, as to what happened uh, within, the, within the family. So, and this was Burkitt's lymphoma particularly. You know, Burkitt starts and grows very rapidly. It's, it's uh, arguably the most rapidly growing uh, tumor that we see. And uh, so it was uh, when, when patients, when, when a child started with this, First thing they did was they waited a few days to see if it was going to get better on its own. Not a bad idea. Um, then, they, uh, then they tried home remedies, uh, some kind of traditional treatment. They, people still are able to pick leaves and, and make uh, their own concoctions. Uh, they would, um, getting into the second week, they would... Is that better? Did I hit that? Nope. I don't. That's okay. I'm doing. I'm doing okay. I think. At least I can hear myself. Uh, so in the second week, then they would go to the sorcerer, the Ngambi man, and they would, and they would try to find out: is this a spiritual disease that they need, you know, that they need to do traditional things with, or is it some kind of a medical illness they need to go to the hospital? And then they would. You know, then they would wait a few days and they would go to a, do something still locally. When they decided things weren't getting better, then they would have to go back home and start to collect their money because you have to have money to come to the mission hospitals. Um, and then finally get to the hospital and get a consultation and get admitted. So it was usually delays of uh, something uh, around a month uh, from the onset. Well, a month in Burkitt's lymphoma can be quite a long time. And the tumor can grow uh, pretty extensively uh, with that. So it gives you some idea of some of the obstacles and the way that people think about these, these tumors. And I suspect that if you go further, this is in a, uh, an area that has, a, has had a long tradition of having well-developed mission hospitals uh, that, you know, that are not very far away. But if you go further out, uh, you know, miles away from, the, the, from this kind of a setting, it's probably, the delay is probably even much worse than that because uh, – People don't, people don't have money to travel is difficult, and uh, you really have to uh, be motivated to, to, try to, to try to get that done. So surgeons are – you can't have a cancer treatment program if you don't have uh, a good surgery program. So we are blessed in Bingo to have one of the PACS uh, surgical residencies based there, and this is their team uh, – 
this is Steve Sparks on that end and Jim Brown on this end and our and nine residents in between that they're training. And so we uh, part of the reason that we have developed along the lines we have is because the, we have this program there and people come and they have tumors, they get it treated and then um, it ends up being some sort of a cancer and then we have to kind of do the follow-up uh, along with that. So out of having a good surgery program, um, it's really pushed us in this direction. Uh, you see, you can't do it without the surgeons, but one of the things that happened two and a half years ago was that this gentleman, this is uh, Dr. Barden, uh, he joined us. He is a, an internist, um, but halfway through his career, he went back to school and did a pathology residency at Wake Forest, and then he's, he joined us uh, out there. Well, when we had uh, a pathologist in, in talking about the kinds of things we are today, it's like turning the lights on. So we actually know what's wrong with our patients. We, and uh, so he diagnosed uh, over 600 cases of cancer last year. And, and a lot of it is that this team starts to develop, and then the patients, because the care is available, the patients start to come there. So that's part of it. But, uh, but this having pathology is one of the key issues in, uh, in the management and development of these hospitals. And, uh, uh, you know, now we're, we, we get in a panic when, you know, if he's gone for more than a couple of days at a time because we can't, we literally can't run the hospital the way that we would like to. We, we revert back to this other model, which is very painful for us uh, to do. And uh, so it's, uh, it's one of the, the very key things that, that we do. Uh, one of the techniques uh, that he brought that has really revolutionized the way that we do things is fine needle aspiration. So uh, we, we, we have an entire path lab set up, but, you know, it takes about a week to do the biopsy, get it processed, and get it back in and get a report back out, which is a long time in our setting because our patients like to come in and they, you can get them to stay overnight uh, frequently, but they don't to stay for a week or to get them to come back is not very easy for them. So uh, with fine needle aspiration, um, this is one of our uh, residents who's uh, doing a, a sticking a, li a liver mass. Um, but we can, we can, just with that technique, we can get enough information that it suffices for what the kind, the kind of things that we are able to deal with. So what we're looking for, and if it's liver cancer, all we, we, that isn't a very treatable thing. And uh, if we have a solid diagnosis, then we're able to refer the patient onto our palliative care program and, and deal with it in that manner. And we can make that diagnosis, depending on the backlog in Rick's uh, office, in an hour or two sometimes. So it doesn't take much time at all. And that, uh, so he, he's done up to 15 cases in a day. And, uh, and as a result of this, patients are, they, I mean, they just keep coming uh, with these things. So uh, that has, the, the pathology services have been revolutionary in terms of what we've been able to accomplish here. And then out of all of this came uh, the, uh, we, you know, the patients are coming, we're making the diagnosis. Well, we were pushed into developing an oncology program uh, to do chemotherapy for them because, you know, patients who get, have breast cancer, they get their surgery done, you have a diagnosis, but then you need to do um, either uh, adjunctive uh, uh, chemo or something of that sort. And so we started doing more and more of that. And, uh, and we've been blessed 
to uh, have uh, some oncologists who come and work alongside of us. We, where we started, uh, th- this is a handbook that uh, we worked on over the years, and it's got some, and, and uh, there's a guy, uh, Al Weir, who's an oncologist down in Memphis that helped us to develop some basic protocols. And so that's kind of where we started. And then we've got uh, some people, uh, Dr. Oviat back in the back there, that have been out there and actually worked with us and helped us to improve those protocols and, and, and standardize our treatments. So that's, uh, we've made some progress in what we're able to do, uh, although we still have um, a lack of a lot of d- the more modern drugs. So we're still basically using the same six drugs that we've that we've had. Um, but this uh, this young man is an example of one of the patients who show up with uh, with uh, Burkitt's lymphoma on his on his jaw. This is Dr. Mbamga, one of our medicine residents that's helping with him. You can't do um, you can't do chemotherapy if you don't have nurses, right? You all know that, that uh, we all live and die by the quality of the nursing care that we have. So this is our oncology team, um, and uh, they do an excellent job, uh, very dedicated. I don't think that they stay in this line of work very long if they're not. But uh, we run now uh, somewhere between 40 and 50 patients uh, on a, that we have on a, on a chemo regimen at a time. And some days they, they will have six or eight patients that come for, to get their treatment uh, on any given day. So um, the nurses are the, are the key to this, to this whole thing. And these are the drugs minus, uh, I don't think I got the vincristine on this one, but this is what we have to work with. And uh, these are very basic, uh, but you know that chemotherapy gets to be quite expensive and as we start to move beyond this, uh, the cost constraints are the thing that's uh, the big issue. So uh, we have not figured out how to uh, to solve that problem because the, that's, the drugs are, that's just what they cost. And um, I don't know how we're going to resolve that. One of the big challenges uh, that we have there is that we, you know, we're a mission hospital and we want it and we want it, we're really primarily motivated take, to take care of the poor patients. And uh, as I always say, the problem with the poor patients is they don't have any money. So we, we struggle. We don't know what, uh, how, how to solve this. We don't want to develop pro- programs that only the well-to-do people can take advantage of. That's not what we want to be about. But uh, if, you have an, if you have a solution to you know, how to do this, let me know, because it's been a, it's been a real difficult one for us. But uh, so we have, these are the drugs we use. Some of the, some of the protocols... Uh, that uh, we do with these drugs are still the standard ones that are done here in the U.S., but uh, some of them then, you know, have moved on to more sophisticated and therefore more expensive uh, regimens. So this is kind of a breakdown of what uh, this is from Rick uh, and what what we did uh, in in 2011. So you can see that uh, the different categories, 287 carcinomas, 276 lymphomas, uh, most of the lymphomas, most of these cases are diagnosed just with FNA. So it's, uh, that's how important you can see the proportion of that. Um, it, the patients come in, we are able to get uh, the FNA done, get it and just get one slide. And, and uh, if we were doing more sophisticated care with the lymphomas uh, where you need all the histo, all the immunologic stuff that they do these days, this wouldn't be adequate. But we don't have that. So... 
we're looking to, we only have one protocol to give them. So if it's a lymphoma, then, and we're going to treat it, that's, we know what we're going to do then. So that's, that's how that works. But somewhere around 650 cases of cancer that came through um, in a year. And these are the ones that we, that we treated. Uh, this is actually two and a half years worth of, of uh, patients that since we started this part of the, doing this, uh, doing treatment there, um, lots of breast cancer, uh, lymphomas, kaposis, these are the, those are the largest categories, and then a total of 272 cases that, that have been enrolled for different, different kinds of things. Uh, we have several uh, special programs that are of interest, I think. Uh, one of them is a, is a Burkitt's lymphoma program uh, that's uh, become fairly well-known. It's done in conjunction with Stellenbosch University in, in South Africa, and it's been running for more than 10 years. Um, uh, Dr. Peter Hessling is a pediatric oncologist who's actually emeritus down there now, but he continues to run these uh, these research protocols in some of the mission hospitals. He works in three of our hospitals, and then he works in um, Malawi and uh, Sierra Leone, I think, uh, as well. But um, he started uh, with the idea that of trying to use uh, locally the, the standard drugs that are that are easily available and untrained uh, medical personnel, patient uh, doctors with no. Not, I mean, not, uh, these are GP physicians, in, uh, African physicians that, that have been doing this. And uh, so his goal was to improve the outcome uh, for these patients with Burkitt's. And this was the first tumor that he worked on. So uh, originally what we were doing was we made a diagnosis. We would use cyclophosphamide, give it intravenously, give one shot a month uh, for six months. And that was, uh, that was always the standard protocol. So he came along and, uh, and used oral cyclophosphamide, not the injection, and he, and he did, did develop an intensive regimen that is given over five weeks. He uses entrothecal methyltrexate to prevent CNS relapse. And uh, using this kind of a very intense program, he has, uh, we were curing somewhere around a third of the patients and uh, it's probably doubled the cure rate up into the 60%, 60-65%. Now, probably 95% of these kids would be cured if we were here in, in a sophisticated environment, but, uh, like in the U.S., but that's a remarkable uh, accomplishment. So he's, he's developing protocols now for Wilms tumor and uh, wanted to work on uh, uh, retinoblastoma as well. So uh, it can be done, and they've treated more than more than 800 patients or so over since this program began. And uh, we think it's very innovative, and it's kind of wonder uh, somebody who's actually doing something that can uh, can have a major impact on on these uh, the, these problems. Another thing that uh, that we do is a, a developing a women's health program. Um, the, uh, uh, there has been progress made with, uh, we don't have pap smears available, and uh, we, to set that up and to, you know, to do the transport and all of that would be very difficult. But there's a technique of using uh, photography. Uh, you, the, uh, during the exam, the cervix is, is painted with acetic acid, and then a photograph is taken, uh, or actually you, you use a digital camera, put the, 
put the uh, image on the screen and you can take a picture of it. And actually, originally when we were doing this, when our people were not very experienced, we would send those uh, those images to somebody, to a gynecologist who overread them for us. And then they can do local treatment uh, with uh, uh, cryotherapy or uh, other, they can do surgery if necessary on that. But they, And we even have a mobile clinic. So uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but just in the mobile clinic, I'm sorry, they, uh, this is somebody else's slide, but they, they've screened over 15,000 women. So the uh, women are very appreciative of having access to, to, this, uh, to this service, but it, you know, it isn't very widely available um, at this point. Uh, and then they did a – so this is – they get the, they get the uh, patients. They, they go out and do education through churches, and this is a poster that they, that they put up uh, demonstrating the progression of, the, of uh, the lesions and what they're looking for. And it's, anyway, the women have been very, uh, very receptive to this, uh, to this kind of thing where, where it's available. So we do it in, our, in several of our facilities within our health system out there. And one of the other things they did was uh, a, a uh, pilot project using Gardasil. Um, the problem with this one has been uh, just the cost of the vaccine. Um, there have not been any, uh, any major controversies. Sometimes uh, using vaccination, especially when you're vaccinating young girls and not the boys, uh, people become suspicious about some sort of ulterior motives that or something. And, but uh, we haven't had big issues with that uh, at this point. But um, they did a, a pilot project. They got some donated vaccine. But I don't think that there's been funds uh, allocated through the government or anywhere to continue this in Cameroon at this point. And then the, the last thing to talk about is palliative care. Many of the patients that come to us either have a tumor that is not a, a treatable, uh, either because of the type of tumor or it's just too advanced for us to, uh, uh, to be able to successfully manage. So uh, palliative care is a very important thing. And uh, we have a program that was started uh, in 2006, and uh, we had some consultants that came from Uganda originally that helped us to get started and do some of the training. Um, the key to the entire uh, program was that, or at least the most important thing I think uh, about it was that we got liquid morphine. We were able to um, to get the government to allow us to import powdered morphine, and then we make our own syrup out of that. So we have uh, we have a potent analgesic to give to these patients, and that's actually not very common uh, across Africa. And uh, there's actually a lot of suspicion about using. Um, adequate amounts of morphine, and uh, some people think that we use far too much, but uh, the, anyway, we've not had any, any uh, significant problems with the use of it um, and, uh, or with diversion or anything like that. I don't know of any cases where people really uh, got into trouble using it. So uh, it's, it's actually the program has expanded into some uh, other mission hospitals and in Cameroon and also some of the government facilities that have been began developing programs of that as well. So I think that if you, you know, with all of these things, uh, palliative care fits our, mo our model of ministry uh, nicely because it gives us the opportunity to do end-of-life care and to deal with the spiritual issues associated with that and to really com provide comfort uh, for the patient uh, because many, 
many of these patients are just uh, not, there's not much else that we have that we can offer them by that time. Um, we have lots of birds at Amingo, too, if you're a bird watcher. <laughs> Any questions? Uh, yes, sir. What is the the cost? Well, uh, a mastectomy costs about three hundred dollars. A um, the pathology services I think are twelve thousand CFA, which is about uh, twenty four dollars for a, for that. And then I talked about our our chemotherapy is around a hundred dollars a course. So it's. Uh, we try to get them from outside the country. Uh, I've, I've, I ordered through MAP. Uh, if you know who MAP is, uh, they're downstairs, I think. But that's, they, they did a special order for us. And I think they were shipped out of Europe uh, is where we, they came from. Yes? We haven't put the energy in to try to... Uh, to try to do that. Um, it might save some money, but it would t- it's an enormous amount of effort to, g- to get those drugs. In the Burkitt's program, uh, they, there's a guy in England that works with, that supports that, and he puts a lot of effort into getting uh, donated cyclophosphamide uh, from, and, sh- and sent, has it carried out to us. So uh, I, it can be done, but you have to continuously work at it, I think, to do that. Yes, sir. Well, we don't have blood cult- we don't have culture at our hospital at this point. Um, we treat we treat empirically. We have we have uh, the, the the we have ceftriaxone as our our third generation uh, drug that we use in neutropenic fever. And uh, we think that probably some of the complications have been related to um, uh, tumor lysis syndrome and acute renal failure and things of that sort. So one of the things that's actually kind of exciting we're getting ready to do is um, we have some people that are going to help us set up a peritoneal dialysis system at the hospital, which especially in, in children that get into trouble, you know, with in those settings, it's usually a few days and it resolves. So if we can get them through that, we might improve our survival even a bit. Uh, we don't try. We don't think that we are. We have enough of a setup to succeed at it. So we, there is a uh, uh, there's a center in Yaoundé uh, in the capital that has a pediatric oncologist associated with it, and they have funds they will treat for free. I'm not sure how successful they are because they technologically, I don't know if they have uh, all of the isolation and all of the stuff that it takes to, to do that well. But it's way, it's beyond anything that we think we can do. We don't have a we don't have a med- an oncologist there at this point. We hope to have, but uh, we don't have yet. Yes. Uh, we we see a lot of uh, premenopausal breast cancer, and we see some in uh, very young women with uh, with breast cancer. Um, 
No. <laughs> We're waiting for some of you to come and help us to find out, to answer these questions. Uh, but. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Yoviad is, you can talk to him. He's, he's been there uh, and worked with us and, and supported the oncology program uh, for us. So we have about 50 volunteers a year that come. So we have a lot through World Medical Mission that uh, recruits, and it's been our, that's our primary source right now. But we have a lot of volunteers. Or you can talk to – this is Nancy, who my wife, who handles our volunteers at the hospital. So we're, we're – uh, you know, we're not, we don't think that we're smart enough to do most of this on our own. So we're always looking for people to come and that have the skills that are necessary to help us to develop these things. Yes? We don't. We're not able to do receptors. We send some. Uh, I, th I think you, we send some receptors out at this point. Yeah, we send a. What do you? It take, we send you a slide, or we send you the tissue. Yeah, uh, we can't do it on site though at this point. But you're right. That there's, but that's the level that we've that we've gotten to. But some of those things, we do have tamoxifen available, and uh, and we give that sort of empirically sometimes. But it, ideally, you know, we would be much better to have information to work with off of this. But part of that is just uh, we've actually come quite a ways in the last several years, but we have a long, long ways to go in, the, in developing the programs. Um, women don't smoke there yet. But actually an interesting thing is they don't smoke cigarettes, I should say. Uh, one of the things that we've started recogni recognizing a lot more is chronic lung d disease, COPD type picture, uh, in elderly women who sit around open wood fires and cook their whole life. So they have, they don't, they're not exposed to tobacco, but they're expo exposed to wood smoke. And exactly how that all plays out, I don't know. I don't know that that's ever been really studied. But we see, um, we'll have two or three patients at a time on our female ward uh, who have, you know, severe lung disease and are hypoxic, need to go home. Ideally, we go home on oxygen, but we don't have that available for them. But uh, uh, so I don't know how that plays into the role of cancer. Yes. Um, I don't know what everybody else is doing. Uh, I think I don't know that. I think we're one of the only places that has a full-time on-site pathologist. Um, so I know that Kajabi has. Uh, they have a rotating group of pathologists that go through, but uh, they're just outside of Nairobi, so they 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 have. The, I don't know how much how much oncology they actually are doing over on that side. How did you all get started doing colonoscopies? Um, well, we don't do it for screening. We do it for symptomatic patients is, is what we're doing. But uh, I was, I've was i been doing that for a long time. Um, it, it, originally, we did a lot more uh, upper uh, endoscopy because there's lots more 
and we still do lots more of that. But we're develop, but there's more and more um, colorectal disease that's that, that we're starting to see, uh, even inflammatory bowel disease and things of that sort. Are they very expensive, the endoscopes, to, to get donated or purchased? Well, we were we were very fortunate to get a uh, a video endoscopic system donated by Olympus before they got into trouble, and so I don't know how well that'll go in the future. But uh, we have a very nice state of the art setup, so we're our equipment is good, and uh, hopefully the electricity won't destroy it and <laughs> it'll continue. Yes, sir. We haven't. We have. Uh, we're. Our patient population are self. They self refer in, and so we're not able to do a lot of. We don't do a lot of screening of that sort at this point. And uh, exactly how that would work in with the false positives and all of that. We're we have enough work to do that we're not looking. We're not able to get into screening. We only ha we only have one one scope and one setup and. One, it's one full-time job at this point. We don't have the personnel to expand that at this point. Yeah. What time are we? We're done. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you.